After Jonathan Lowe, we go from the sublime to the ridiculous. And I'll start out with the obligatory uh, self-effacing uh, um, deflationary lowering of expectations and modesty and say up front, I have no idea what I'm talking about. <laughs> so it can't get any lower than that, right? Anything else, is anything above that is going to be... Um, what I'd like to do is explore a conception of causal relations that begins with the idea that causation is a matter of, as I like to put it, the mutual manifestings of powers or dispositions. And I'll use these terms interchangeably, power or disposition. Um, really, you can think of the whole uh, pitch of this paper as conditional. If you adopt an ontology of powers... Where else does this lead? I mean, I think sometimes we do metaphysics by picking and choosing, cherry-picking views that get us the right answers in the short term, but maybe don't fit together too well in the long term. And I want to suggest that if you go for an, on, an ontology of powers, certain other things fall into line. If you get on the bus, you go to the end of the line. Um, this approach re reverses the order. So we want to talk about... Um, causation in terms of powers. This approach reverses the order of expectation favored by philosophers who hope to provide causal accounts of dispositionality. What I hope will become clear is the extent to which the acceptance of dispositions as fundamental, as fundamental brings with it a dramatic ontological shift that leaves behind a host of widely accepted metaphysical theses. I do not expect many of you to find the resulting picture immediately appealing but I will be satisfied if I at least manage to make salient the extent to which conceptions of causation and laws of nature we've come to take for granted in fact encompass substantive theses, theses often with unsavory histories, or at least histories that many of us nowadays would regard as unsavory. Uh, theses in need of defense. These theses did not fall from the sky. Laws of nature, psh, just invoke those suckers, right? No problem. Where did they come from? They're a rel relatively recent invention in the history of science. Causal relations are re widely regarded as relations among distinct events, relations that are asymmetrical, causes precede effects, non-reflexive, no event causes itself, and transitive. So if A causes B and B causes C, then A causes C. Some philosophers, the Humeans, hold that all there is to A's causing B is that A and B are suitably spatially and temporally related. A and B are contiguous spatially and temporally. And there is a true generalization of the form, whenever an A-type event occurs, a B-type event occurs. On such a conception, causation is a paradigmatic example of an external relation. Think of an external relation as something in addition to its relata. Uh, you could have the relata just as they are without their standing in the relation. Socrates' being 10 meters from Simeus is, or appears to be, an external relation. You could have Socrates and Simeus just as they are without their standing in this relation. <clears throat> I'm, I'm not going to defend this view. In fact, I don't believe it, but... Uh, it's, I'm get, trying to give homely examples of what I want to talk about. Um, if God wants to make it the case that Socrates is 10 meters from Simeus, God must not only create Socrates and Simeus, God must, in addition, locate them 10 meters apart. Similarly, 
for a humean, you could have this A and this B without its being the case that A caused B. This could be so, for instance, were A and B spatially or temporally non-contiguous. If you think that an event's identity depends in part on its time and location, then you could imagine A and B occurring just as they do, but in a universe in which it is not in general true that whenever an A-type event occurs, a B-type event occurs, in which case it would be false that A caused B. David Armstrong explicates causal relations by reference to laws. An A causes a B just in case A and B are universals and there is a higher order necessitating universal constituting a law of the form uh, the A's necessitate the B. So it's so a canonical Armstrong formulation is right. The A's necessitate the B's. <laughs> Armstrong follows Hume in depicting causal relations as external. God could have created a universe that includes A's and B's without its being true that the A's necessitate the B's, without its being true that A's cause B's. In general, anyone who supposes that causal relations are governed by laws of nature and, laws are, and that laws are contingent in the sense that laws could vary independently of whatever they govern is supposing that causal relations are external. So, who cares? I suspect that there are good reasons to be suspicious of the ontological status of external relations. Certainly, many of our most venerated philosophical forebears regarded external relations as aberrations. Um, few philosophers nowadays would agree with this assessment. We tend to take it for granted that relations are perfectly respectable denizens of the universe. More than a hundred years ago, Russell established the satisfaction of most of us that relations are indispensable. We eliminably quantify over relations in mathematics and in the empirical sciences. Relations have paid their dues. We probably actually even owe them something, right? I mean, now they, they've, uh, they, we, we, so it's true, certainly, that relational predicates are ineliminable. We could not say all we want to say about the universe without them. Attempts to analyze relations non-relationally or paraphrase relations away appear hopeless. But you can accept the indispensability of relational predicates. You can accept that there are endless, ineliminable relational truths without thereby committing yourself to the idea that truth-makers for these truths are relational features of the world. If this sounds paradoxical, this might be because you're invoking Quine's principle of ontological commitment. You accept the idea that we are ontologically committed to whatever we ineliminably quantify over in our most cherished theories. I prefer to think that Quine's criterion yields an accounting of truths to which our theories commit us. This, however, leaves open the nature of truth-makers for those truths. Thus, you might think, as Leibniz apparently thought, that there are ineliminable relational truths, but truth-makers for these truths are non-relational features of the world. You know, the quotation that Jeff gave us from Leibniz says, Leibniz says relations are creatures of reason, but in the sentence immediately following, which he did not include, Leibniz says, nevertheless, they tell us something important about the world, or something to that effect. I mean, Leibniz, in saying they're creatures of reason, he certainly did not mean that, and Jeff, of course, did not imply that he meant, he certainly did not mean that we can say whatever we want, that surely differences in the world make make it 
truth that makes some of these relational uh, attributions true and some not true. Such a view is completely silent on the question whether you might be able to analyze relational predicates non-relationally or paraphrase away talk of relations. The idea that relational truths have non-relational truth makers is sometimes equated with the idea that all relations are internal relations. I'm, and I have the same view of internal relations that Jonathan has. So. I've characterized X and maybe Peter too, I think. I've characterized external relations as relations that are in addition to their relata. You could have the relata just as they are intrinsically without having the relation. An internal relation in contrast, and this is just a simple way of characterizing, of thinking about them, is a relation founded on its relata. You, uh, if you have the relata as they are, you thereby have the relation. Similarity is an example of an internal relation. Imagine two patches of red. God does not have to make the patches and then, in addition, make them similar. If you have the patches, you have the patches being similar. This might seem too quick. Suppose Socrates and Simeus are similar color-wise. Both are pale. <clears throat> Surely God could have made Socrates and Simeus the relata without its being the case that they are similar. Could God, however, have made Socrates and Simeus just as they are intrinsically, without its being the case that they are similar with respect to color? A better way to think about this point requires recognizing that in this case, Socrates and Simeus are relata only accidentally. Socrates and Simeus are similar because they are similarly colored. Socrates' paleness is similar to Simeus' paleness. Socrates and Simeus are... I never, I'm amazed that I can actually read this. When you write it, you don't think what it sounds like when you're reading. Are similar with respect to their colors. The pertinent relata are Socrates' paleness and Simeus' paleness. And it seems right to say that God could not have created these palenesses without its being the case that they are similar. You might think of internal relations as supervening or being founded on their relata, but I believe that these are just two somewhat infelicitous ways of saying that truth-makers for internal relational truths are non-relational features of the relata. Uh, in fact, I think this is the best way to understand supervenience. Not, don't understand supervenience as some sort of an ontological relation that things that you, from which you can construct levels of reality, but just think about it in terms of truth-making. The project of reducing all relations to internal relations has enjoyed a long and checkered history in philosophy. Too often, this took the form of attempts to recast relational assertions, relying on a vocabulary stripped of relational predicates. As Russell showed, it's easy to doubt that this is possible. Another, another equally unpromising strategy made use of the thought that you could replace relations with relational properties, presumed to be intrinsic to their possessors. Suppose Socrates and Simeus are 10 meters apart. Then Socrates possesses the property of being 10 meters from Simeus, and conveniently, Simeus possesses the property of being 10 meters from Socrates. As Russell and Moore both pointed out, however, to say that Socrates possesses the property of being 10 meters from Simeus is at bottom just an awkward way of saying that Socrates and Simeus are 10 meters apart. A metaphysically disingenuous way of saying that Socrates and Simeus are so related. 
I find the ontology of external relations ontologically impenetrable. This puts me in good company historically, but in a minority among philosophers practicing metaphysics today. With this in mind, my aim in what follows is not to defend the thesis that relations are internal, but merely to show that a certain way of thinking about causal relations and the causal structure of the universe implies that causal relations are a species of internal relation. Truth makers for causal claims are non-relational features of the world. And the story I'm going to tell is essentially the story that John Jonathan already told, unfortunately, so you're going to have to hear it again. I, ha- I, ha- I do it slightly differently, though. Um, increasing numbers, so let's talk about powers. All right. Increasing numbers of philosophers have found themselves attracted to the Aristotelian idea that properties, or some properties, bestow powers on their possessors. A ball's sphericity endows the ball with the power to roll. In virtue of possessing a negative charge, an electron would repel other electrons. Some philosophers who embrace powers hold that all properties, all intrinsic properties of concrete objects are powers. Others think that some properties are powers, some not. Although I'm partial to the idea that every property is a power, this is not something that will play a role in what I have to say here. Rather, I shall consider only how the invocation of powers bears on our conception of causal relations. Suppose, then, that a ball rolls, or would roll, owing to its sphericity. It would, in addition, in addition, owing to, owing to its sphericity, look spherical, feel spherical. It would make a circular concave impression in the carpet. So conceived, the ball's sphericity is a is a way the ball is, a powerful way, a power. The identity of this power is determined by how it would manifest itself with suitable reciprocal manifestation partners. That's the jargon that I like to use in these cases. It comes from Charlie Martin. By my lights, and with one important exception, any power is a power to manifest itself in different ways with different reciprocal partners, different reciprocal powers. In this regard, Powers are invariably multi-tracked. Okay, so Ryle makes a distinction between single-tracked dispositions or powers and multi-tracked ones. I want to say essentially they're all multi-tracked, right? It's 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 a an artifact of attempting to give conditional analyses of uh, assertions concerning powers that we get the idea that pow- one power has only one uh, a sort of uh, manifestation. The manifestation of powers is a thoroughly reciprocal affair. And and this, I think, I do disagree with Jonathan and probably with Anna as well. Water has a power to dissolve salt. Salt, a reciprocal power to be dissolved by water. This makes it appear appear that that water has an active power and salt a passive power. Or Sidney Shoemaker talks about forward-looking and backward-looking powers and so on. Salt waits to be dissolved with the appropriate stimulus. When the appropriate stimulus, water, is introduced, the manifesting manifestation being salt water. But when you look, or the salt's being dissolved in the water, doesn't matter. When you look closely at what happens, when you stir, when you stir a spoonful of salt into a beaker of water, you see that the salt and water interact. The salt and water combine combine forces to produce a particular kind of outcome, salt water. The process of dissolving is symmetrical. 
continuous, wholly reciprocal. If you want a simple model, okay, so try this as a model for causation. Instead of thinking about billiard balls, here's a, here's a model. Uh, imagine two playing cards propped on a table upright, like that. The cards remaining upright uh, is a matter of the mutual manifestation of reciprocal powers of the cards, the table, the gravitational field, and who knows what else. There's a lot that goes into it. Okay. Uh, you might or might not fi find such a view congenial. All I, all I, I ask only that you consider its implications. First, note that on such a view, it would be a bad idea to explicate powers and their manifestations causally. So we have this familiar schema. You've got a power of a certain sort, and then you have a stimulus or a trigger, sometimes called, and it causes the power to manifest itself in a particular way. Okay, this is the way Alexander Byrd has talked about powers. I ask him in the, in the salt dissolving case, which is the S and which is the P. Uh, so this, what, I, what I'm saying in essence is this schema uh, cannot do justice to the reciprocal nature of manifestations. Worse, characterizing powers causally appears to have the order of explanation backwards. An ontology of powers provides ample resources for an explication of causation. Roughly, causal relations are the mutual manifestings of reciprocal manifestation partners, manifestings of reciprocal powers. Causes are understood in terms of interactions among powers or dispositions, effects or manifestations. Second, notice that the identity of a power is bound up with ways in which it would manifest itself with, with particular kinds of reciprocal partner. Suppose the, this ball's sphericity is a power. Its being a, the power it is depends on its manifestation profile, how it would manifest itself with particular sorts of reciprocal partner. But consider the implications of such a view. If the ball sphericity equips the ball to roll down inclined planes on a, in a particular way with particular so, sorts of reciprocal partner, and I'm including the gravitational field or whatever else it takes, right? The atmospheric pressure, who knows? Um, uh, then, if, if that's true, then when the pertinent partners are assembled, the ball rolls. The rolling is not something contingent, not something that depends on anything outside the dispositional matrix that includes the ball, the inclined plane, the gravitational field, and what have you. If you have these, you have the rolling. I can sense heads shaking. I can actually see heads shaking. <laughs> it is easy to supply the ingredients of a rolling, but prevent the rolling by the addition of further ingredients. Any of you could supply endless examples. Suppose the ball is steel and we place a powerful magnet beneath the inclined plane. Suppose the ball is prevented from rolling by a strong headwind. Or... The philosopher's all-purpose foil, when all else fails, suppose a wizard casts a spell that prevents the ball's rolling. Such cases are not ones in which dispositions fail to manifest themselves, however, but cases in, in which a different ensemble of disposition partners manifest themselves differently. Given the dispositions on hand, given the powers, all goes as it must. A point that Descartes makes nicely in slightly different terms in the uh, sixth meditation. You could think of the universe as a dense dispositional matrix evolving continuously over time. 
Its evolution is fully locked in, fully deterministic. Dispositions are dispositions for definite kinds of manifestation with definite kinds of reciprocal disposition partner. Once the dispositions are on the scene, the manifestations are on the scene as well. The evolving matrix provides truth makers for ordinary causal claims. We could call this Aristotelian supervenience as opposed to Humean supervenience, right? If relations between dispositions and their manifestations are internal, causal relations resolve themselves into internal, ontologically recessive relations. You could arrive at the same conclusion by considering the nature of the causal nexus. Okay, so think about the causal nexus now. What is it for a cause to bring about an effect? Suppose the A's cause the B's, but only sometimes. When this is so, we look for some additional factor, C, that together with A causes B, concluding that it was really A together with C that caused B. We seek some factor D, the presence of which would prevent A's causing B. I have suggested already that cases of this latter sort are really cases in which different collections of dispositions yield different kinds of manifestation. Now suppose that the A's cause the B's only with a certain probability, that there is no difference, no difference, between cases in which the A's cause the B's and those in which they don't. There are no hidden variables. Suppose, imagine such a case. In such cases, it is hard to see in what sense the A's ever cause the B's, ever bring about the B's. If an A can occur without a B's occurring, in what sense could the A ever be responsible for the B's occurring? If you find such cases unproblematic, if you say, I don't see the problem. Uh, If they do not make you ontologically queasy, then you can just tune out right now, because nothing I say is going to convince you of much of anything. You're going to find what I have to say unpersuasive. I suspect that the sense that there is no special difficulty in the A's causing the B's, but only, but only sometimes, stems from the easy availability of imaginary cases in which, owing to natural complexities, the A's can occur in concert with C's or D's, thereby, thereby changing the dispositional circumstances. So it's easy to imagine in most cases the A's occurring without the B's because there are all kinds of other factors that are in fact required to get the B's on the scene. I mean, I think you have to feel, you have to feel that there's a problem here, right? And what I say, I have the obligatory um, um, saying that um, I think serious metaphysics, as the medievals understood, is not done up here. It's done right here. And and I'm pointing to my chest for those of you on the radio, (laughs) on the podcast. Uh, Now, so I've talked about these evolving dispositional matrix and everything is locked in and deterministic and so on. Um, Is the conception of the universe as an evolving dispositional matrix at odd with physics and with ordinary experience. Physics tells us that occurrences can be irreducibly probabilistic and indeterministic. Ordinary experience seems to reveal a universe rife rife with uh, accident and contingency. Consider the idea that the universe and occurrences in the universe appear contingent. Just looks contingent, man. You know, there's a possible world in which this, this glass is two inches to the right. 
I can just say that, right? I have this godlike uh, knowledge of, of what is uh, what's possible. Um, uh, so it, the universe appears contingency. Contingency rules. Contingency is the default. Claims concerning necessities require defense. If you make a claim that there's a necessary connection, you have to argue for it. If you say that something is contingent, it comes for free, right? Nobody, call, nobody calls you on it. Uh, but could this be right? What is it to appear contingent? What, is, what does contingency look like? In primary school, we learned that for millennia, People believe that the sun orbited the earth because this is how it appears. It looks as though the sun rises in the east, moves across the sky, and sets in the west. But how would it look if the earth rotated on a north-south axis and orbited the sun? It would look exactly as it always has looked. How would it look if Spinoza were right and every occurrence were rigidly necessary, exactly as it looks now? Whether an occurrence is contingent or not is not something you could know by casual inspection of the occurrence or the envision of, a tra- of alternative possible universes. Philosophers who blithely announce that one or another truth is contingent owe the rest of us an argument when the truth's being contingent plays a role in an argument and a claim that's being made. Neither contingencies nor necessities come for free. I doubt, then, that a conception of the universe as locked in, as a locked in dispositional matrix, is at odds with our ordinary experience of the universe. But what of physics? What of eliminable indeterminacy? Consider the decay of a radium atom into an atom of radon accompanied by an alpha particle. The decay is flatly indeterministic, or so physics tells us. There is a definite fixed probability that the atom will decay over a certain period of time. But when the atom decays, it does so spontaneously. Its decaying is not due to some further factor, some hidden variable. Its decay is uncaused. If physics is right, or this... um, joke example of mine that if, if my weak understanding of physics is in the ballpark here um, uh, such spontaneous occurrences are ubiquitous you might think of spontaneous occurrences as sources of real contingency if the atom decays spontaneously it is contingent that it decays when it does Return to the idea that the universe is a continuously evolving dispositional matrix. As originally conceived, the matrix was locked in, as I put it, fully deterministic. Now sprinkle in myriad spontaneous occurrences. When you do this, you propagate contingencies throughout the system. Notice, however, that none of this introduces any sort of looseness on the part of causation. Causal truths are made true by the manifestings of reciprocal dispositions, and these are inevitable. Spontaneity is a matter of dispositions requiring no reciprocal partner for their manifestation. When the radium atom decays, nothing causes it to decay. But the atom's decaying is a manifestation that, together with various reciprocal partners, can issue a new manifestations that would unfold perfectly deterministically. Earlier, I characterized the root idea that the universe is a dispositional matrix as Aristotelian. The development of Aristotelianism was a development of a conception of the universe as self-governing. Objects do 
or would do what they do because they are as they are. There's no separating what an object, an electron, a horse, a black hole is and what it does or would do. Objects are the objects they are owing to their powers, their dispositionalities. The universe unfolds of its own accord. Contrast this picture with one according to which objects are governed by laws of nature. You have the objects and you have principles that govern their behavior. What the objects do or would do depends not on the natures, not on their natures and on the natures of their companions, but on the laws. What is the source of this conception of the universe as law governed? Consider the situation from the, from the point of view of the medieval church. God is omnipotent. God could do anything consistent with logic. This includes God's having the power to create alternative universes, universes in which things behave very differently from the way they behave in our universe. A view of this kind does not sit well with a conception of the universe as inevitable and self-governing. If a tomato does what it does because it is as it is, once God creates a tomato, God loses control of it. The difficulty can be overcome by removing the powers from the objects and placing them in God. So, powers were in the objects, take them out of that, put them in God. Okay. Uh, now objects do what they do, because they are, uh, not because they are as they are, but because God so decrees. Laws are principles on which God acts. One notable feature of this move is that it makes laws external to what they govern. In creating the world, God must create the objects and, in addition, establish the laws. The laws could have been otherwise. This is the conception of laws that emerged in the hands of Descartes. This conception did not fall from the sky. The idea that we get it for free, that you do not have to argue for it or defend it, seems to me to be crazy. Um, that it's just an innocuous truism. This is the conception of laws that emerged in the hands of, of Descartes in the 17th century. I'm seeing Descartes as the culmination of this view, then it goes into Newton. Uh, uh, and the conception embraced by Newton. For Newton, space is God's extension. Space is filled by God, who is literally everywhere, exercising control over bodies, moving, and at rest. Now fast forward to the 20th century. We don't need God, right? Take God out of the picture. God is no longer in the picture, leaving, as it were, a power vacuum. Remember, we put, took the powers out of the objects and stuck them in God. We now eliminate God, and now what are we going to do? That's okay. There's still the laws, right? Um, you might have thought this would have led philosophers to, re, uh, to reclaim powers for the objects. You might have thought this would have led to a return to the Aristotelian picture of a self-governing universe. It did not. By then, the picture practice of explaining goings-on in the universe by reference to laws was too deeply entrenched. The laws remained. But without God, in what sense did the laws govern, right? Uh, if you start with God's efficacious decrees and subtract God, what is left? Hume saw the difficulty regarding laws of nature as true universal generalizations. Such laws in no sense govern. Armstrong reintroduces a measure of governance, but retains the thought that laws are contingent and external to what they govern. 
If it is a law that the A's necessitate the B's, this is not because the A's and the B's are as they are. Laws are ontological add-ons. Armstrong regards it as a virtue of his conception of laws, that laws entail human universal generalizations. If the A's necessitate the B's, all A's are B's. Many would regard this supposed virtue as a vice. So Nancy Cartwright has made a career of pointing out that laws considered as generalizations are rarely true. The laws lie. Okay. So there we owe them a, we owe them a lot, but they're mendacious. So. <laughs> but but if the laws are not what Armstrong thinks they are, how could they govern? Perhaps Mark Lang is right in arguing that laws are true counterfactuals with contrary to the fact facts as truth makers. I'm just just kidding. Okay. <laughs> if nothing else, I hope this brief foray into the history of the invention of laws of nature brings out the oddity of attempts to explicate powers nomically. Laws came on the scene as replacements for powers. Once powers are reinstated, the idea that laws govern the behavior of objects loses traction. Does this mean there are really no laws? I prefer to think of laws in the way scientists seem to think of them, not as, and philosophers sometimes, even though they deny this, seem to think of them when they talk about them as being true or false or partially true or whatever, uh, not as occupants of the universe, but as equations, formulae, principles, whatever. You might think of Newton's laws of motion as providing an indirect account of the behavior of bodies in space by distilling the contribution mass makes to the behavior of objects that have mass. On Newton's view, each object exerts a, exerts a force on every other object in virtue of their respective masses. This means that the actual behavior of bodies in space is going to be the result of continuous interactions among bodies exerting reciprocal forces. And because these bodies have properties in addition to mass, their observed behavior will be affected by factors other than mass. The reinstatement of powers and a return to the Aristotelian conception of a self-governing universe would provide a way of understanding how all this might work. Objects' properties endow those objects with assorted dispositionalities. There's no separating what something is and what it does or would do in concert with other things. Interactions among objects are mutual manifestations of reciprocal disposition partners. The manifesting of reciprocal dispositions, what I call a causing, is a symmetrical continuous affair. This is the causal nexus. This is where the action is. Talk of causes and effects is made true by the manifesting of reciprocal dispositions. A given disposition is the disposition it is because it manifests itself as it does with particular kinds of reciprocal disposition partner. If you have these dispositions under the right circumstances, you have these manifestations. Dispositional systems evolve gaplessly. A conception of this kind nudges us away from conceptions of causation according to which causation is an external relation. It does not pretend to turn every relation into an internal relation. 
Spatial and temporal relations, for instance, remain untouched. You have to do something on the, along the lines of what Jonathan was suggesting. Uh, recasting causation in this light, however, promises to illuminate the nature of the causal nexus, to provide a way of understanding what it is for something to be brought about causally, say. Okay, concluding words here. You might or might not like the idea of explicating causal relations in terms of the manifestings of reciprocal powers. Let me suggest, however, that one attractive feature of such a view is that it enables us to understand truthmakers for causal claims of the form A caused B as non-relational features of the universe. This, in effect, makes causal relations internal relations, and, and that, I think, is a good thing. Thank you very much.